Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E, M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Ollie Steele, who is in Monuments with Brown. So this is an interesting one because they get pretty honest with each other. I've known Ollie for quite a while now. He's a great dude and a great guitar player. Ollie Steele, welcome. What's happening? You know. Hello, Oliver. Talking to you. For, for sure. I've, I've listened to, uh, I listened to half of one of these, actually. I've listened to half of the Andy James Riff Hard podcast. I am actually impressed that you listen to any of it at all. Well, it's, do you know what? <laughs> From the outside, it's like one minute there's like the first flyer and then all of a sudden there are, there's 20 episodes later and everyone's going on about it. It looks like it's doing really well. I will say this. Uh, yeah, people are digging it. I feel like uh, Let's Start a Podcast is like the Let's Start a Band of 2020. Yeah. I feel you. Most of the time people start them and then don't get past two or three episodes because it's a lot harder to come up with interesting things to say than people realize. But uh, what we did was we we did a fucking shitload up front so that the momentum would just get started, basically. Yeah, that seems, that seems smart. And the, the caliber of guests you've had is cool as well. I've already, there are like five or six that I want to listen to, but I just need time. And yeah, so like I said, it feels like it's crept up on me personally. I just, I just, one second, there wasn't a Riff Hard podcast and now there's like seven or eight that I'm like, oh, I should listen to that. That's how it goes. But well, I want to talk about you. Cool. Okay, we're done. Uh, he's funny. It was nice having you. Very cool. good. Very good. No, how do you guys know each other? It was actually through Mike, wasn't it? That we were introduced. Yeah. So I met Mike at a gig, a Tesseract gig. I was supporting with my first, my only other band, Cyclamen. And that's basically it. He, in, he introduced himself as Mike from Monuments. And based on his look, I was like, yeah, yeah, of course you are. Like, I just didn't believe him at all. <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening to Monuments all summer. Do you know what? For two reasons. One, it was, they were up on a pedestal in my, in my brain because I really fucking loved them or loved the one song. I think they had three, three tunes out and I'd heard, Maybe two at that point, uh, admit. And what's the other one? Uh, it was uncollective or memoirs. Or- memoirs, memoirs, memoirs. So you loved them, but you didn't know what he looked like. Well, this is part two, is that at that stage, they were still doing the whole, like, no one knows who we are. 
Like we're not. Yeah. Oh, mysterious. Yeah, kind of like a Slipknot thing, but without even the masks. It's funny because Sleep Token did that for a while. So, so basically, no photos. Yeah, there are a few bands who've done it since, and I'm sure there are bands who've done it beforehand. Yeah, so I just didn't know what to expect. But like, as we got chatting, it was like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe he is. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> was he wearing his Volvo jacket? <laughs> he would have been wearing some some dad shit for sure. <laughs> and that's it. And, and then. He asked me if I could fill in for a tour with Monuments. And that upcoming tour was with Periphery and Tesseract. And I knew that was coming because I'd seen the flyers. So I just said yes. How did he uh, figure out that you were capable of doing it? So this is the funny, the funny bit is I don't know. I think maybe, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think someone has seen a video of me tracking with Sickleman on YouTube. But at that gig... I was really hungover. It was maybe, if, it, if we're talking about Sickleman, it could be inside of my first five ever gigs. So at that gig, I was nervous and I was underprepared and I was hungover and my foot slipped and I half basically fell off the stage and it was a train wreck. It wasn't good. So when I, when I asked him, I can't remember if I asked him before or after he asked me to do the thing, but he was like, oh, no, I, yeah, sorry. I said to him, um, you didn't see any of that, did you? He was like, no, I was in the van. So I was like, oh, sweet. Yeah, I could play Monuments. <laughs> I didn't know that bit. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, it was a shit gig. And to be honest, well, this is the other thing. I, I, I can't remember who I was having this conversation with. I had this conversation with someone recently. And I think at that point, I don't think there were so many options. There wasn't this like thriving tech metal gent scene. There wasn't London. Monuments wasn't established. There wasn't like this, you know, the thing that we have now. So I think options were fairly limited as well. And like even just having a seven or an eight string, they weren't like, they weren't all over the shop. Do you know what I mean? So, so he put me into contact with Brown that way, I think over Skype basically. And it's around then that they, that I think Brown asked me, do you have a seven string? And I, I'm pretty sure I just lied through my teeth and said, yep. <laughs> <laughs> did you have to borrow one or did you buy one? I bought one off a mate who I knew had one. And I just threw all my money at him and I went like, this is mine now. You don't play it. This is mine. Shut up. I've got an opportunity. I don't care. And then, so then I did all that. And then Brown um, sent me a video of him playing Doxa. And that was fucked. So at that point, I, I, I felt like maybe I fucked up. Because I knew, I knew that I couldn't really pull that shit off at that current moment. There was too much shit going on. All the rhythms and all the tapping and the techiness and just the fluency. And it was a seven string. I'd never, I'd never played a seven string before. So it was a lot to take in. But so, how much time did you have? I think, well, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't that pressing because I don't think monuments were very organized at that point. I don't think anyone, <laughs> that's me, that's me being light about it. None of us were though, you know, when I eventually joined as well. Was it before the Winds of Plague tour that I started chatting to you or was it after? No, it was after because I saw you at the bar at the Underworld gig of that tour. And I, and I, I looked at you and you looked at me and I think I kind of knew who you were, but I didn't talk to you because I didn't know enough. So it was, oh, yeah. it was definitely Back when I was skinny. <laughs> I, I feel like I didn't have a lot of time at all because I was playing a seven string for the first time, basically. And there was a lot to take in. There was a lot of info. Brown, did you realize he felt like he was in over his head? No, not at all. <laughs> like the, the first thing that Mike showed me was a cover of Tesseract's that Ollie did and it was really, really tight. And as Ollie said at the time, it was like a very specific niche of guitar players 
that could really understand. It's like, the, it's, it's, I mean, not to relate monuments to Meshuggah because that's just defensive to Meshuggah, but how I remember Meshuggah trying to find a bass player for ages after their old one left. Uh, what was it? Gustav Helm. And they got Dick in. Um, and they said, because it's such a specific style of music, it's not like anyone can just walk in and do it. And I think at that sort of time period, which was what, 2010? Yeah. Like Periphery 1 had only just come out. And it was still like, it wasn't regular for a guitar player to be able to play weird rhythms. It was, just wasn't there. So we heard Tesseract. He was like, ah, oh, yeah, this guy can play. Let's just see what he can do. And he did it great. I scraped, I scraped past. I don't want to see any footage of that first tour. I learned learned so much so quickly. It was, it was a lot, man. Let's talk about how you actually went about learning it. Cause uh, that's, I think that that's something that actually comes up on this podcast a lot is a lot of these guitar players we've had on have been in a similar situation where suddenly they have to learn like 50 songs in three days or or two weeks, so, some crazy shit like that. That seems to be a common theme, and I always find it interesting to know, like, how somebody goes about actually doing that. I think that was the moment where, like, my song learning abilities kind of came to be what they are now, because I feel fairly confident at it now. What did you do? Um, well, it's just, like, a lot of repetitive listening, and for me personally, the smartest thing to do seemed to be add a note at a time if it, if it made sense. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't like skip to the third section because it sounds chuggy and simple. I wouldn't tackle the hardest sounding thing because it's the hardest sounding thing. I would try, I would play the first section of the song. If I could only do the first half of it, then I'd do that much. And then I'd add a phrase onto that. And then I'd start from the beginning. Again. Do you know what I mean? Like layering. Because that way you get the added benefit of like increasing the the amount of times you've actually connected the parts together, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. The only question I have about that method is if you're starting it from the beginning every time, like basically going in chronological order, do you ever run into having the ending be a lot tougher to play than the beginning because you've played the beginning that many more times? Sometimes, obviously, you can look at, you can hear a riff and go, yeah, I can do that. Or you can hear something and go, oh, that will take me a second. So vice versa. I think I didn't have the luxury of time, so it just had to happen. And I was also pretty, pretty young and hungry and I had fuck all else to do. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a job. I was perfect for monuments. <laughs> <laughs> he did have a job though. He's lying. He used to teach guitar at the time. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I had, yeah, I had like a, That's a job. Two or three students, but you know what I mean? There wasn't, I wasn't feeling, it's not like now where I. You weren't really adulting yet. Of course not. Yeah. And I was just getting, I was just drinking all my money and just being an issue. It was a lot of fun. And I, I really, really think that if someone wants to do the band thing, they need to take those like late teen years and early 20 years and go nuts because that's kind of going to be the only time in your life when you really can just fuck off and learn as much as you need to. Right. So, yeah, it was a good time for that because I was pretty spongy. And even though I'd also just come out of college, I think, and even though the monument shit was hard, I had been listening to Tesseract and I had been listening to the Bulb demos. And I was, you know, I was, it wasn't like Monuments was the first progressive thing I'd heard. You know, I'd been listening to Meshuggah, I'd been listening to Synth, uh, Sixth. Don't know why I said Synth. So it's not like I hadn't been exposed to that kind of crazy technical progressive stuff. I hadn't been listening to it forever, 
but I at least had some concept of what to go. Like when I heard Monuments the first time, I was like, oh, they're inspired by Sixth because they have this dual vocalist thing happening. And one of them has a, a similar rappy kind of raspy scream and they're techie and I can hear the Britishness and do you know what I mean? And I could kind of hear them as sugar in certain bits. What was the toughest thing to pick up? The toughest thing to pick up was, I say the rhythms, just the, because um, I was, I came from like just Roadrunner metalcore and stuff. I liked other stuff and, and thrash metal and death metal and Gojira was my favorite thing. And Gojira, um, my favorite band ever, forever, but they're not the most rhythmically challenging all the time. They have a lot of that droney stuff. Whereas this had rhythms that were like inverted and over the bar line phrasing and just odd groupings and all this stuff, which to be fair, I never doubted I could do it because I didn't have any doubt in myself at that point because I was 20. So therefore I was the fucking man. I quickly learned that I wasn't, but that, that stuff was the trickiest because if you told yourself you can play metal for a couple of years and then it's like, well, actually here is the, here's the, the, the forefront. This is the cutting edge side of it right now. Like this is where people are taking it on an extended range guitar um, with weird phrasing and stuff that you don't expect. Then it was like, ah, oh, okay. So I kind of, that's where my, my true rhythmic chops kind of started to develop, I would say. Quite interesting because Doc said something very similar about when he was learning Bad Wolves. That he like came from a similar sort of background. Obviously, you're, I know you're a big fan of God Forbid. Mm. But he said that when he joined Bad Wolves, he actually had to do a pretty similar approach. Yeah, and I think it's pro- that's probably from the same thing because he is that metalcore sound that I was listening to. Yep. When I, you know, I, God Forbid were a big, a big part of me just kind of getting into metal and the metalcore thing. And and if people listening aren't familiar with Bad Wolves or are only familiar with them now, they didn't sound like hard rock radio stuff when they came out. They actually had like super heavy, modern sounding rhythms. So yeah, going from the metalcore background to that, he was saying that it's like a whole new musical language, basically. Yeah. I'm really glad that I got that kind of out of the way at that point, because now if there's something rhythmic, I don't feel like I couldn't tackle it. There's always something outside of the norm. There's always something, I'm not saying I can do everything forever, but you know, I consider myself someone pretty rhythmically okay now. Do you know what I mean? You don't know what you don't know, right? So up until it was like, can you play this riff? Yes, but can you play it displaced by a 16th note? And be like, what? Do you mean you don't really get, you don't really know, you don't really find that out. That was a, it was a lot of fun. It was a it was a, a it was a ball ache, and it wasn't good for my ego. And but it was really eye opening, and it's just like and now it's a huge part of of kind of what I am as a result. How do you think about odd groupings and odd times? Like, what did you have to do mentally to be able to understand that? Is there like a way that you count them or feel them or like how did you wrap your brain around that? I would feel everything basically. Everything's everything's feel the. It's, it's kind of, it can be kind of tricky because this is 10 years ago. It will be 10 years ago, like late this year when I started, when I got that seven string, and I started doing this stuff. I, I definitely was a big fan of doing the add a note. Do you know what I mean? Add a little bit to the success, add a little bit to the, the thing you can already do, add a tiny bit to that and, you know, uh, take baby steps, edge, edge closer. Um, so with the rhythms thing, it was exactly that. Like if there's a riff, you can learn a riff, but then when you have to play it again, but you're kind of, one note ahead or behind of where you played it the first time. That really shook me because it was like, well, I've just really drilled this thing in. 
I've just drilled it in to start on the one and now it doesn't. So it just took a bit of grinding, to be honest. But but now after doing that enough and like learning a whole Monuments album or a couple of Monuments albums or writing my own stuff or, you know, whatever else is going on. Now you now I kind of see it all as malleable information and it's a lot freer and it's like you just drop the notes where you want them. You're not it, you decide where they go. Do you know what I mean? You're not getting thrown off by the weirdness anymore because it doesn't even feel weird. No, no, it's, it just feels fluent. It doesn't mean it doesn't take, it won't take me a second or something might not be trickier than others. But yeah, I don't, hopefully I won't be in that situation again where it was like, there was a split second. I don't think I was ever going to turn around, but there was a, a couple of moments where I was like, oh, I might have just fucked it because I don't know how good they think I am. But I've definitely told them I'm good enough. So <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of freaky. Brown, what were you looking for in a guitar player? As I said, it's it was just at that point in time where it needed the understanding of it. I was quite lucky because like I joined Fell Silent in 2004, which was significantly simpler in many ways than what happened with the Monuments first records. So it gave me a little bit of, you know, time to sort of really understand it. For looking for a guitar player, it was literally someone that could play it. And, you know, before Ollie, we had two fill-ins that, again, had very similar backgrounds to Ollie in the music stuff that they used to listen to. Like one was called Jake, who played in a band called Visions, and he was a huge fan of Sixth. Um, Then there was Paul Ortiz, um, who is known as Chimp Spanner, who I consider to be the first person that really did this sort of modern weirdism style, the Meshuggah thing, basically. Like, I think his album came out seven years before Periphery One, his first album. So that's kind of what I was looking for. I was just looking for someone that could understand it and play it well. It's like finding a diamond back then. Yeah. <laughs> and then my, that, I can only imagine what that's like because now you have Facebook groups and you have Riff Hard and you have the Instagram algorithm and you even, you know, YouTube even now, I mean, it was, it was, it was going at that point, but it had only been going for like five years, like properly. So I can only imagine what it's like. You don't know anyone, you haven't taught as much. You don't have this connectivity. You don't have the reach because you don't have the profile. So like trying to find someone in London or even in the UK, who has <laughs> the UK, a seven yeah. and an eight string and will will go on tour and can play Doxa. It's a bit mad. <laughs> yeah, that was a problem. I mean, like even just finding a vocalist, like again, at the same time, at that period was like, you know, obviously we have an Andy now from the United States and flying from one country to another doesn't even seem like that much of a problem. But at that time period, like, as you said, there was just, you were kind of limited because it was the BAM style. Now you can't expect someone to fly 12 hours or something with when you don't have any money as a band either. So it was like, we were, yeah, it was very, very limited on trying to find someone to do it. And to a degree, I mean, like, I think that Mike, myself and Swanee and obviously Ollie a couple of months later, we kind of just had to learn this because I definitely wasn't that technically proficient on rhythms until really Doxa came out, I would say. So I guess, yeah, we all kind of learn it at the same time. Ollie, how much of a life uh, fuck was that to go from only having played five shows to within a year, like playing India and doing it for real? Oh man, it's just so, so insane. 
and I was still very much mentally developing. Let's not get it twisted. I was a little fuck. <laughs> and it was it was very ex- aren't we all yeah i would say that's a big part of like acclimatizing to touring i'm in monuments temporarily but i'm in monuments and i'm playing these songs and it's very challenging and periphery and tesseract who are the two other buzzy bands that i was listening to that that summer 2010 are also on this tour and there are big crowds and it's like literally like the birth of gent in in europe and i i, I don't know that or I'm not thinking that like if I party too much tonight, not only am I going to piss everyone off, but also I'm going to suck tomorrow. Like I was just learning everything the hard way, learning about touring etiquette, learning about, you know, setting up the stage, learning about loading gear, learning about you're basically going to eat shit and not sleep or shower. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was everything all at once. And it was pretty much the deep end, you know? So there's a lot going on. It takes a while, I think, to to figure out the touring etiquette part of things. I can't think of a way to learn it other than the hard way. Yeah, and as with many things in life, it's not always the same each time anyway. So we could easily, we've we've toured, you know, we've been a few places. I mean, Brown has even been touring since before Monuments, but I consider myself having only started with Monuments. But um, we could easily tour with a bigger band now and be like, oh, they like to do it this way. Do you know what I mean? There are, there are many, mm-hmm. many different kinds of character, many different, you know, people prioritize different things. And we've been in situations where it was all cool. And we've been in situations where they don't want to see or hear a peep from us. You know, it's it's a mixed bag, but it definitely helps if, if I stay sober and I shut up. <laughs> I think also to a degree, AL, just to go back to what you said, it's like, it's the tour etiquette thing. You remember this was Ollie's first tour three days in. And I think that at the time, the singers just like forgot about that, if you know what I mean. It's like when we were 18 touring, like with Fell Silent, it was like different to how we were at that point. I think I was 24 at the time. And that's kind of how I approached it. I was just like, all right, yeah, just guy just needs time. It's kind of like a hangover, isn't it? You just need time. (laughs) Yeah, I've got a, I, I don't know if I've ever said this to you, Brown, but I have to give you huge credit for having any sort of foresight or patience with me at at that particular time, because we were, you know, it was like a really cool opportunity and we were like hanging on by a thread. I remember we were doing the whole tour in. Oh man. The postman's van. Yeah. And, uh, and it was rough, it was rough conditions and we didn't, I mean, I didn't really know the guys anyway. So I was learning, I was meeting everyone for the first time. We hung out for maybe a couple of weeks before tour whilst I learned the shit and then we just went off and it was just like, so mad. And I think if we had a member now who was doing that, like, say before we got Andy, if we had a member who was acting the way I acted, I'd be like, no, dude, absolutely not. <laughs> so I got to I gotta give you credit for having any sort of faith. But then again, I also do believe that I was one of the few people in the UK to have a seven string. And maybe that's just why it ended up being me. No, you're, you were probably one of the only people that could actually play it. Well, you could argue that I still well. can't, but we can get to that later. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that I can't either, but... <laughs> this is making me think of... Uh, do you guys remember that band Noctmistium by any chance? No. Never heard of them. Okay. There's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> so back around 2007, 2008, they were this American black metal band, which sounds like an oxymoron, but... There were this black metal-ish kind of band that for some reason was actually 
getting attention, which is super rare. And they were, they were like progressing up through the underground and then they got an Opeth tour. And so that was going to, that was like, you know, their first, uh, real big time thing. Three days into it, they were playing the Palladium in Worcester and, uh, threw a TV out the window and got kicked off the tour. And that was basically, no. it was just one of those. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it was the tour manager or Michael or whatever, but it was basically a, we don't allow this kind of shit on our tours kind of thing. Sorry, you're gone. And, uh, that kind of, that was it for the most part. Those stories are real. Like, uh, that will fucking up like that will change the trajectory of somebody's career for sure. Yeah. Or someone's life. I mean, a TV can fuck someone up outside of the whole, I'm not in this. <laughs> Could have killed somebody. Battle. Yeah. But you know, I think if I think back, right. Uh, we've probably had that conversation about everyone who's currently in the band, like say minus Andy, cause he just got hit. So he's got still, still got some time to fuck up. Yeah, although I have I have good faith in him. Don't prove me wrong, boy, or I will come over there. <laughs> well, next year, <laughs> maybe the year after. Yeah, he'll yeah, he'll easily he'll now. easily have perfect tour etiquette for the next year. Perfect. <laughs> no red flags there. But you're saying that you've had that conversation about everybody at some point. I think I've I think I've probably said. To, well, I mean, we have a few ex members, so. There's your proof, really. Yeah. <laughs> I've been, I, you know, you, it gets it gets real. At certain points, you have to look at, like, you know, beyond beyond the whole, like, does this work socially? It's like, is this good for the health of the band? Can this band continue if this continues? Do you know what I mean? Have real conversations. It's You know, it's intense. Yeah, because uh, you have to all be able to handle really, really trying situations with an attitude that doesn't poison the well, basically. Yeah. And poison is a perfect word and it can be very hard to, that's what it, it is. Can, it can be very, very hard to see that stuff when you're experiencing all these highs, like great shows and meeting people and endorsements and having a good time with, you know, with your, your band members, your mates and stuff and all that stuff. And then, and then on a little bit of reflection, you can be like, hang on, this guy doesn't have my back or he, this guy isn't pulling his weight or, you know, it can get, um, it can get a bit real. I do. And one thing about Monuments, I think, is a, a big part of this band is carried, I mean, obviously by Brown, but then a lot of it is carried by just like the soul of Monuments that wills it to continue, like the music and the fan base and stuff. I'm not saying that I want to stop at all, but what I'm saying is there are many bands who like grew up together on the same street. Like, yeah, we used to jam when we were 13. We always dreamed like about corn. this. Exactly. Corn, Parkway Drive, that kind of thing. We're not that. When I walked into that rehearsal room in 2010 and saw fucking monuments from 2010 in the rehearsal, everybody looked completely different. Nobody knew what the fuck was going on. Everybody had a different idea. It was so wacky. Everyone came from somewhere else. It was just like, what the fuck's going on here? And I think that, um, yeah, I think there's something, there's something a little bit deeper than just, I mean, there's definitely something deeper than just like business or, you know, money because we're a gent band. So, you know, that's not what's driving us. But um, some, <laughs> somehow it's still it's still going and there's like a real soul in there. So I think that's pretty cool because we don't you know, we just got kind of lumped in with each other. It was like all of a sudden one minute I was just like listening to After the Burial in my room. And then the next I'm on stage 
with these, at that point, it would have been five other dudes that I just don't fucking know. And everyone's varying ages and varying backgrounds. And it was just like, so nuts. So it makes it that much more important for people to be on the same page about the important stuff. And talking about that, it makes me think back to like my only regrets really about any band I've been in is not kicking out poisonous members sooner. Mm. That like if I think back to like mistakes that were made, I can generally trace eighty five percent of mistakes back to something that happened because someone that should have just been fired at some maybe years earlier wasn't for whatever reason. Well, that's why it's so messy sometimes. I think I think right now we're really good. Everyone's quite positive. Um, we have like our communication is so much better. Like we've been through some shit. So we know we know what's going to piss each other off and what's not. And we know how to, I feel like it's not like, I'm not saying it's not going to happen again, but I feel like this is definitely the best Monuments has ever been socially and business wise. And like just in terms of communication, but it can be, you know, when it's earlier, and you don't necessarily know each other so well because you haven't been through that much shit. And it's like, there are so many of you. So for, to, for a decision to be made, and there are five of you, and maybe there's not so much influence from management or any prior... Like, I didn't come from, like, a big successful band. I came from a band that was, like, a, a one-man project. So I didn't call any of the shots. I'd have made zero business idea. So I had nothing to bring to the table in, in that regard. I had no prior... Do you know what I mean? You had a seven-string. Well, I had a seven-string the whole time, bro. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it can get really, it's like a, it's a, it's a big messy family. Yeah. It's also quite like just talking about this just makes me realize that, you know, when another thing, when it comes to, to firing a member and for some reason, just in this style of music more so than others where um, people get so offended by it, uh, the, you know, when you actually announce it. You mean fans? Yeah, fans. Yeah. Like, you know, like they don't really think about the other dealings. You know what I mean? They don't think about anything other than the music that they've listened to. And it it, it makes it all the more complicated at the same time. Because obviously with most other styles of music, if you fire the singer, that's really the only one that matters. But with this style of music, it could be any member and it can completely change your fan base's opinion on you. And you can't really go into detail as to the reasons as to why at the same time, yeah. you know, it's like, it's so personal a lot of the time, you know, it's normally nothing that would really benefit anyone talking about it. No, um, it wouldn't benefit anybody. And uh, it's not a classy thing to do, but also no one's going to understand it. Right. Exactly. And you, and you will never make everyone happy anyway. So there's no point trying. <laughs> but like, if it's you very, think, very I true. think when a band loses a member, especially in a band, like Brown said, in a band like this, where, you know, each separate member is probably quite good at something maybe, or has a bit of personality or a bit of character or add something. A teenage fan will just go, oh, they're going to be shit now. Whereas if, if one of our peers loses a member, I'm going to be like, whoa, something really fucked up must've happened. That's the first thing that happens in my mind. I never go to mm -hmm. say goodbye to that sweet kick drum ability or like, oh, he could hit a high F sharp. Well, you're not going to hear that again. I'm just like, wow, something really fucked up. Because at the end of the day, you're, it's under the assumption that the individuals know that it's a great opportunity and they've been through a lot together and they've had a success together and they've, they've gone through fucking, it's like a, a trial by fire, you know, together over the years. You know, they're basically family 
and they've been signed and they've sacrificed so much to do it. So it's a clearly a big, it's a big choice. No one's, no one's just like off the, we're not just going, ah, we'll just fire him. <laughs> We've only ever been in that situation where it's like, we cannot continue. It's either there's a band without this member or there isn't. But I don't think people think about that. They don't think like, wow, that must've been a really, really hard to, decision to make. Do you know what I mean? People just go, ah, they're dead to me now. New album's going to suck. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think you're it's right. Quite youthful, but on the flip side, it also is an opportunity to reinvent yourself to your fans. And if you pull off the change well, people will embrace it. For instance, Andy, he's going he's going over great. We're just so lucky that he you know was around. Yeah, that could have gone very badly because Chris is a great vocalist. So that that was that could have easily. That could have easily blown up in your face, and it didn't. For sure, but I think we are aware of what happened vocally in our past, and we respect what was good about it. I don't think we would rush into finding a new guy just to make it work. I think we're beyond that now. We've had situations like that before where it's like, well, we need someone. Do you know what I mean? Kind of like me joining the band. Or kind of how, kind of like <laughs> how I see it anyway. Actually, man, I that was one of the biggest mistakes I made in Doth was uh, was hiring somebody too quickly. Sorry, sure. who? Uh, I'm not gonna say who. <laughs> go to go to Wikipedia, <laughs> folks, and work it out. You can work it out. There was been, there were a lot of lineup changes, so they they're not gonna know who I'm talking about. I'll tell you guys after. It's shit, man. Like, let me tell you. Let me tell anyone who's listening who has a problem with any of the lineup changes. First of all, I can't be fired. So let's just get that on record. Number two. No, I'm just, I've just given you that as a soundbite. So for, let's say touch wood, it ever happened. You can just put, you could just put that in a tune. But um, it's a shit, it's a shit thing to have to do. It really is. It's really horrible. Yeah. Like imagine we go through, yeah. through all these auditions. We go through all this shit to finally find the guy. And it's a leap of faith. And then we get to know someone and blah, blah, blah. And then we go through the shit together and we go touring and we make music together. And, you know, that's real life shit. And then to have to bring an end to that. And years go by. Yeah. You adapt, you evolve, you grow as people together. Um, and you see the good and the bad and the ugly. And if it gets to a point where the ugly is like so much worse, the ugly is so much worse that it's not even worth the good anymore. That's a horrible decision to have to make. And like respect to anyone who's ever, you know, had to pull the plug in that way and like put their foot down and be like, we cannot continue this way. I would always choose the band over over anything else. And I think that's what we did in a couple of situations is like, we ca we cannot continue with monuments in this, in this form. It's a huge thing. We have to bring someone new in. We have to, none of us knew Andy. It just happens that Andy is like a legend. He's a really, he's a really hardworking legend with an amazing voice. And we're extremely lucky. But we didn't know that on the, on the first tour or the first, you know. There's no way to know. No, they're not. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm like, oh, please just at least let him be functional. Can I just start there? Like I'll have like a tiny, <laughs> do you know what I mean? If I, have, if I have tiny, tiny expectations, do you know what I mean? Because he could be anything. He could be like I was when I first, you know, a hot-headed, like hyper uh, inexperienced. With Andy, here's a good thing for you. With Andy, uh, we got to chat. So the Andy thing happened because Anoop was like, oh, you should check out this kid. He's going to sing on some of my stuff. He lives down the road from me. I was like, yeah, he sounds sick. And um, we were just kind of chatting. And then I had him in my mind. So of course, when we started having issues with the last singer, I had him in mind. So we got talking and stuff. And I was like, 
do you think you'd be able to sing this stuff? And he's like, yeah, no sweat. I was like, have you toured much? He's like, yeah, a bunch. I was like, have you sang and screamed before and fronted a metal band on tour? He's like, nah. It's like, so you haven't spent, you haven't <laughs> spent any extended period of time singing and screaming. He's like, nah, you're just going to have to trust me. And shit like that is, 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 <laughs> just, can you imagine what it's like? Because I kind of, I kind of yes. do because from, <laughs> from what I've seen fuck. and heard, I think he's amazing. And from what the, from the boys in the band, they're like, they agree. They're into it as well. So it's like, but it also comes with the news that he's never sang and screamed before. And for anyone who doesn't know that like screaming obviously is extremely fatiguing on your voice. And it's like a trade-off between the, the accuracy of your cleans and what have you. And especially imagine doing that for multiple days on tour. It's just, people just wouldn't even know the struggle. So, you know, making a decision like that or even putting that to your band members and be like, yeah, so he's never um, screamed on tour. Should we get him in? Like how fucking ridiculous is that? It's such a it's a hard decision to make and a, and a huge leap of faith, and it's not something that anyone takes lightly. So why'd you do it? Because um because there's a bit of faith, and I think that having situations like where Brown once showed faith in me. Yeah, but why did you show faith in this guy? There's a lot of people you could have chosen to put faith into. What was it about him knowing that he hadn't done that before, and that that is really scary? Why him? Like, why were you all right with that? He sounded great. That was literally it. Like, what we heard sounded great. And if he was as hardworking as, you know, we saw from what he was doing, then it was literally a case of we just needed to give him time to get used to it. So there's a certain level of, you know. That's the thing. Yeah, the work ethic was a huge part of it. It's like, oh, okay. So he's extremely prolific. He knows how to record himself. He knows how to demo. He knows how to edit. He knows how to he knows how to market himself. He's very busy. He's collaborating with a bunch of people. He's clearly, very clearly trying to make a name for himself and do something with his talent and his opportunity. And that is exactly, literally exactly the thing that Monuments needed the most from our singer at that point. So here he is, this kid who isn't in the biggest band in the world. He's in a big, he's in a band who have a following, but he's not in the biggest band in the world. You know, he's able to do the stuff we've done before. He seems nice, like I've chatted to him before. He, uh, every, you know, he does all these covers so we can see truly what his singing, what his screaming sound like. We've seen live footage outside of that. What else do you have? You know, it's like, it, it would be great if he lived down the road from us, but he doesn't. And we, you know, we've had members, we've had enough members in that situation before. So it's like, yeah, let's see, let's see what he wants. But also he sold himself. He, you know, he said to me like, dude, I want this really bad. I really want to be the singer in a metal band. I want to sing and scream live. It's like the thing I want the most. I love singing, but I really want to scream. Like, this is the thing I want to do. I think this is a good opportunity. Like he said those words to me. So I have, you know, it feels good. There wasn't, it didn't seem to be any trickery or any, you know. Yeah, I've always felt, well, not always, but now I feel like the right way to go about things is invest in a person more than in skills because people can always learn skills. But if they're the wrong kind of person, it almost doesn't matter what skills they've got because it's going to fuck everything up. Like that's the attitude I take when hiring people at URM. That's I've read a lot of like investors talking about that sort of thing too. When they're like investing in an entrepreneur, like it's almost like sometimes they don't care what his current company is or her current company is. It's more that they believe in that person. They want to be involved with that person because they think that even if they're not, hundred percent ready then they'll be ready at some point something great 
will happen. It's a total leap of faith, but I think that's the way to go. Yeah. And it's, a, I guess that was my point is like, that's uh, I clearly have a little bee in my bonnet, but that that's a decision <laughs> that we take very seriously. And uh, it's not something we do for a laugh. You know, we have to have emails, we have meetings, we have, we stay awake at night. We're thinking about our future. You know, we're thinking about who, who's this person going to be? You go from someone who, yeah, it's not working with, but it, it can, it has worked with to right back to square one. And arguably for a lot of people, it's the most important piece. Like this is a huge thing. So Andy just being around when he was, is a real, real lucky thing. And um, I really like the guy as well. Andy's great. He quickly became a really good friend. It's very clear where his heart is at and and he's quite hungry and he wants it to happen, you know, for himself. And I don't see any like, evilness in him so that's always good shout out andy oh yeah <laughs> so let's talk about your guitar playing oh shit yeah it's time <laughs> what do you want to know <laughs> what what are you working on like uh how, what what do you do now to keep your level up to keep my level up yeah because you, you can't you can't slack off in this style of music well i mean keeping your hands on the instrument is a big one I think I have this thing that I think a few people, the stage where a few people get to, I'm not trying to tell anyone that you can ever get to a point where you don't need to work on what you're doing. But once you learn enough about like the fundamental, the fundamental way to achieve something, whether it's, let's be honest, people want to hear about fast downpicking or, you know, shredding or, you know, just impressive stuff. Once you kind of learn enough about the, the fundamental approach to that, then you don't have to do the thing you did when you were 16, which is put in eight hours a day. And that's lucky because when you're an adult, mm-hmm. you don't have eight hours a day to be practicing sweet picking and useless nonsense. Um, it, it, anyone who feels <laughs> offended by that is probably the target of that. So get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree with you, by the way. What I'm usually thinking about is um, musical, it's, it's musical upkeep now. It's like timing like articulation and like swagger and groove and all this stuff that I didn't focus on early on. So I feel like I'm behind that now, but outside of that, if, you know, for example, there's some new monuments material that I tracked recently and I became aware very, I practiced it. I did the thing that I did when I was a kid. I put my regular hours in, I did it every day. I'd slow the thing mm-hmm. down. I'd work it up to full speed and it felt all right. And then when we got into the studio, I was like, ah, you're fucked. Because it was, I, I, you know, I'd reached a point where I was like, okay, um, this is actually a little bit faster than I am. And there's no quick way to get faster, especially not if you've done the work to be relaxed and work out what works for your body and be efficient in that way. There's no way to cheat it. No, but luckily we've got the old Pro Tools. So I just recorded everything half time and, uh, and it all sounds like DIs and that's kind of the style now anyway. So People are going to love it. Fuck it. Don't even, just go note by note. Don't even play it. Just, just, that's a joke, by the way, just for anyone who, uh, <laughs> I know, I know, you know, I know Brown knows, but yeah. yeah. So. No, it's good to clarify. Cause somebody listening won't know. Fuck off. Get fucked. So it's like, I think that, uh, yeah, it's more musical stuff now. It's less technical. It's more like I'm, I'm really stretching my brain in terms of like, note choice and note placement and like the sound and like the delivery of stuff more than, oh, that was some sick, quick shredding. Let me do some quicker shredding. That doesn't, 
that doesn't get me anywhere. That doesn't make me feel fulfilled as a musician. Well, you already did that. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I I kind of got into that when I was younger, and I because you're a total like you can shred your ass off. I'm not going to agree with that. You can. I didn't even know that for a long time. <laughs> I don't market myself as that because if someone put me on the spot and asked me to, I probably couldn't do it. But I think that um, that stuff, you know, the Paul Gilbert and the John Petrucci and the Yingwei Malmsteen, all that good shit that I was fully, fully in love with when I was a teenager, so sick. But it doesn't crop up in anything that I create musically. With, you know, with Brown, with other projects, it doesn't really satisfy me. It, that, those aren't the stories that I want to hear. Lead playing is just really not the focus. R- riffs and chords are like the walls to your, to your song, to our songs anyway, to the sound. And what with Monuments being my primary focus, that's like my, my like DNA, basically. Um, I'm not here thinking about, oh, I need to get that sweet pattern up by 5 BPM. That's just not my life anymore. So Makes sense. I think that musical muscle memory is a very real thing. And it's the same thing with uh, athletes. For instance, uh, if someone is an athlete for like 15 years and they take a few years off and then go back to working out, they'll pop back into the kind of shape they were in way faster than somebody who uh, is just starting out just because they have that muscle memory already. That That is a real thing. And everyone's everyone's really different as well. But I think depending on your kind of mindset and what you want from it, luckily what I want isn't like mad speed. So there's not really much maintenance. But you've already got mad speed. You're going to have to stop doing this because... <laughs> so was, I'm, dude, I'm not an ass kisser. I'm just being real. Oh, I know that. In fact, I find you to be incredibly abusive. But there's only one, there's only one man <laughs> who I find more abusive than you to me. <laughs> abusive and that's my boy joel one a sec oh. <laughs> yeah he's intense you should I, I i really hope our chats our chat history on facebook never gets leaked because it's just not okay <laughs> <laughs> but yeah if you so yeah what i was saying was if you depending on who you are if your fundamental shit is together it's all right do you know what i mean there's still things that need work there's still things you'll catch yourself and be like do you know what? i'm not actually very good at this thing um that i need to put a little bit of work into but i i've i can do enough shit now where I can kind of create what I want to create and say what I want to say. And it's, it's never really a case of maintaining speed. How many hours a day do you have the guitar in your hands now? I'd say probably, uh, uh, it depends with teaching. It could be like, I say a bare, 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 bare minimum of like three, probably. And you could say that it could be a day where all three of those hours are, um, lessons, but then I'm, I'm also going to pick it up for fun and I'm always working on other stuff as well. So it's quite a lot actually at the moment. It probably wasn't that last year, but it depends what's going on. It depends if I, if I have a recording session, I'm going to try, I'm going to chill on the lessons and I'm just going to try and focus on that. Or if there's a monuments tour, if I'm on tour with monuments, I'm playing the guitar an hour a night. That's it. I have no desire to play or, do you know what I mean? Outside of that. (laughs) Unless we have new songs or we're jamming, you know, whatever. The other thing is that with, with teaching comes song, there's a lot of song learning or there can be, which I'm starting to realize is like a huge time consumer. So that could be a factor, but yeah, probably, you know, at least a couple of hours. It's fucked up if I, if I don't have one. That's quite a bit actually to be an adult and still be able to do three or more hours a day. Holding the instrument is a lot. I am an unemployed gent guitarist though. So adult is quite the title. 
<laughs> you say you're unemployed, but you teach quite a lot of people. Yeah. No, I know. I'm just trying to be funny. <laughs> How do your lessons work? Um, I get the email. We work out time zones. Where can they email you, first of all? Yeah, I try and get everyone. If you're If you're a young teacher, get everyone's shit in the same place. Tell them to email you. Even if they DM you and ask for one tiny thing, just say email me and send your email. That way you can find it. But what is your email? So that someone listen if yeah, if someone listening wants to take a lesson from you. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you asked me that. Uh, it's Oliver hyphen steel with an E on the end at hotmail.co.uk. Hotmail. Yeah. A couple of people have brought that up recently. I might be behind the times. Hotmail. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got to say is wow. I can take that. It's all right. I don't mind. <laughs> That's me being abusive. No, no, it's not. Because as soon as we stop recording, that real <laughs> shit will come out. That was light. <laughs> so yeah, lessons go true. like that. Uh, I get the message. I quickly say, what do you want to work on? Because if someone says to me, I want to be able to sight read uh, from the real book, then I'm going to have to point them towards someone who can actually help them because I can't. Then we work out dates, times. Time zones are a huge thing. Like most of my students aren't from the UK. So you got to dance around with that stuff. And then that's it. We we get to what? So you're saying that there's a ton of song learning. Is it generally song learning in the genre? <laughs> so this is, it has been recently. Yeah, I just kind of find that basically with, with, with work, because I'm a musician, right? I'd say yes to most work like that comes my way. I had a thing um, a couple of years ago where a friend of mine was like, uh, my guitarist has left the band. Can you record this um, power metal album for me, basically? And I was like, uh yeah man i was doing solos i was do like power chords and all this stuff it was mad so if someone says to me can you teach me this song i'll say yes and so you know it could be anything from like this is uh, a dude it's cam actually brown ah sick he gets me to teach him a lot of like frank turner and diligent escape plan and stuff like that and the gallows so that's pretty fun but then some kids sometimes would be like yo can we learn um this tesseract tune tomorrow I'm like well hold your fucking horses i don't I don't know every, I'm afraid I don't know guess. every uh, prog metal song. And even though, yeah, do you know what I mean? Or like a periphery tune. So those are like learning a periphery tune and learning a Tesseract tune are such different beasts. Yeah. Like the periphery tune is going to have a, a way more notes, a lot more fretting, a lot more awkwardness. The Tesseract tune, the challenge there will be coming from, will be coming from like not rushing, learning to play like in groove. And then obviously all these backwards grooves and yeah, or this off kilter, like proggy, polyrhythmic stuff and it's like i i can't internalize that in an evening when you're not even my first lesson of the day do you know what i mean so yeah there can be and i'll say yes but it's it's still fun so i'm in the middle of a few tesseract tunes and a few periphery tunes now and i've been doing like alice and change stuff and like i said dylan just stuff. this is only just recently i can't even remember what i was doing last month or the month before but do you find that uh learning all those songs translates into your playing and writing later no <laughs> all it does really? all it does is make me go wow everyone plays less notes than me and brown literally <laughs> literally i well even periphery nah well it depends on what era of periphery right i guess that's true yeah i i just see a lot of you know we kind of traverse the neck a bunch in monuments depending on the song and a couple of years ago i filled in for volumes for a tour which was like the sickest time of my life it was a lot of fun because the, the tunes were way less demanding, although they still weren't a piece of cake because I still had to internalize everything. And there's a lot of funky rhythms in there. 
But, you know, there's way less notes, a lot more power chords, single note shit, just groovy, genty, boppy shit. And um, just seeing how those songs are constructed from a guitar perspective anyway, and just being like, oh, they're happy to kind of chill on in one area of the neck for the whole thing. They're not really trying to travel or there's not much sliding or articulate, you know, it's a very different thing. Because it's so close to home, you know, volumes are like a, an established groovy gent band. I'm not trying to, to nick any of that really. And the same with Tesseract, you know, it's too close to home. I'm not going to start trying to write a Tesseracty thing as much as I love that band. So it's almost like you know exactly what to avoid. Yeah, I think with, with Monuments, we write to sound like Monuments. Do you know what I mean? And in whatever shape that comes in. So whether it's like power chordy Monuments or techie Monuments or whatever. We've had, we've had conversations about bringing other elements in all the time, but it's about not forcing it and letting Monuments be Monuments. Do you know what I mean? I can't remember the last time I heard some like metal and then I was like, yeah, man, I'm going to go write some riffs. <laughs> that actually happened to me yesterday. Really? What was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've actually just started over-listening to In Flames. Okay, this will be interesting. Really? Yeah, and I just it's been stuck in my head for two weeks, one particular song. And, you know, I've listened to In Flames before, but it never really grabbed me in the same way that it has at this point in time. Me neither. You guys are crazy. But it's just stuck in my head, and I'm... And I'm just like, this is sick. Why? As I say, it's not that I it, it it's not that I didn't like it beforehand. It just didn't grab me at that moment in time because you know I was It was too happy. It is really happy, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being happy, people. In music there is. So <laughs> at the gates and in flames kinda hit the scene at a similar time period and they kinda sounded like similar genres, except one was dark and one was happy, and I, I went dark. I don't really like happier sounding music. It just doesn't scratch the itch. Darth had dual guitar harmonies and quirky, quirky gypsy jazz. He was doing a bunch of mad shit. How'd you pronounce his name? Emil? Yeah, he's the man. Yeah, but it was always dark. Actually, I think you're right. And I think one of the main things I found Darth and I was like, oh, another Roadrunner band. Sick. Hang on. Where is the singing? That was like the, it was kind of blackened and it was kind of dark. Nope. I remember this now. It was a real mistake to sign us. <laughs> Pulled the wool over their eyes for sure. I want to know, um, before we get too far ahead, I want to know what song and what album Brown's new In Flames boner is directed towards. Okay. The one that keeps getting stuck in my head is the chorus of a song called I Am Above. Is that a new one? It's one of the, It's not on the remix. It's one of the new ones, though. It's like the guy in the dark, uh, the actor, and he's just, you know... You, show, you showed me that video, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it, I've just uh, recently, it's just like, it's got stuck in my head. Um, and then I went back, you know, they've remixed the new album. So I went back to the original album. It's really quite sick, isn't it? That's claim. That's a classic metal album, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I, again, like obviously, I, I, I've listened to the record before. The time period that I listened to it, I was more interested in my sugar. So it was just like I just didn't really appreciate it as much as I can do now. That's fair. I I would suggest you listen to Come Clarity. That that album is for me. It's just absolutely incredible. Although I think the production might make you feel a little bit ill, but for me, I love it. I'll just put it on in my car. It's fine. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's just banger after banger. It's really metal Corey. It's very Swedish, but it feels way more authentic than a lot of the other shit that was going on in, in 2005, because they're kind of the, they're basically the band that brought that kind of dual guitar harmony to that thing. Do you know what I mean? Other than, you know, there's Metallica and Maiden and stuff, but they kind of, 
I think Inflames were the band that kind of went, look guys, we're going to add this into our current metal. Come Clary, such a sick album. I don't, I don't know what to, to say, man. If you can't, if you can't <laughs> say anything nice, <laughs> get fucked. Don't say it at all. I agree with you. Let's put it that way. Uh, and I do respect that band and everything that they did. And I know how influential they are. He's being so political right now. No, it's the truth. I saw them live uh, with uh, Nevermore ages ago. Well, yeah, that was ages ago. You must have been in your 20s. It was like 2002 <laughs> or three, man. And they were impressive. They were good. It's not my thing. It's not dark enough. But that doesn't mean that they're not, you know good or anything like that so that's fair enough i think that if you're a true inflamed spam you probably know all about clayman and shit I, I believe that's their like classic offering and i just don't know that album i found come clarity i bought come clarity from hmv in 2005 because the artwork looked cool and i was blown away and i felt so lucky that i because you know spending a tenner on an album in 2005 is gigantic i was like whoa this has everything it's got the riffs it's catchy it's a little bit weird and the production is a little bit hard to kind of grasp. And it was just like so sick. You, you kind of did that a lot from what I gather because <laughs> you did it with the Tool album as well, right? Yeah. And sometimes I didn't even pay for them. Ah. <laughs> uh, back in those days. <laughs> you said something I want to go into with both of you guys, actually. No. You're talking about how in Monuments you're traversing the neck a lot. Playing that shit live, standing up, moving around, and having to traverse the neck and not fuck up. How did you get good at that? Both I just of you, fuck I, I want to hear. Just fuck you up. Just fuck up. All right. There's the answer. <laughs> Don't get good at it. Personally, when I hit the stage, I know something will go wrong. There are too many notes for me to nail every single one of them. <laughs> and we're we're quite we're physically performing quite a bit as well. Anyway, like there's a lot of like head banging, body banging shit going on. Yeah, you guys throw down. Try to. That's my favorite. I think that's my favorite thing. If I had to pick one thing about my life, I think it's head banging low when the big riff comes in. I think that might be it. But basically, <laughs> I think the quick answer is don't do that when the hard bit's happening. Just stand still. And, st and you'll still fuck it up. Just and even if you don't fuck it up, I'm still out of tune with Brown. So it's just like, why try? <laughs> just give up, everyone. Tracks. Just use yeah. tracks. The, the transverse in the neck thing, it wasn't something that, well, actually it kind of was. It was Pin's fault. Pin from Sixth. It's kind of what started the whole thing. Um, he basically came up to me after a fell silent show and he's like, why do you have a seven string when you only play the low string? <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of his fault. And then, you know, started listening to more Sixth and was like, ah, oh, I should do something like that. Let's just make it harder on ourselves. Why not? It's not something that I sit there and think I need to play every fucking note on this fretboard. It's just that it comes out like that and it sounds good. You know, it's not like I'm actively trying to play all these notes all the time. And no, I don't get I don't get that vibe from you guys at all. None, none of your music sounds like uh, like it's masturbatory or anything like that. But still, you got to play it live. You still actually do have to be able to do it. It's just challenging. <laughs> There's one riff that I'm struggling with uh, on the new Monument song that Ollie's written, and it's causing me a little bit of discomfort. So thank you for that, sir. Which one is that? It's the verse. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the one that um, that's the one that it, when I was in the studio, I almost just just left. Yeah, put it on a bass. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Brown, how when you go to learn something like that, that is like out of your comfort zone. So we heard how Ollie does it. How do you go about 
that. It's really similar. Like I, I'm a visual learner. Like I, if someone shows me it physically, I pick it up a lot quicker than say I'm reading it from a tab because it, it automatically gives me the idea of what it looks like to play. I've kind of always been that way. It always takes me longer from tabs or any other way of learning. This like I filled in for periphery in 2010 and I found that I learned it a lot quick, quicker when Misha or Nolly at the Nolly at the time was showing me how to play it. So I always get Ollie to send me a video of what he's doing. And then it's just a case of repetition and making sure that all the nuances are right. The nuances is the problem, I think, with most of this. It's not necessarily the note. It's like the length of the note. Do you slightly bend this string? Is there like, do I need to mute my right hand here in order to make it sound right? And all those little things. It's just that's kind of the focus. So it's getting that bit right, basically. I th- I think that uh, having a video is so crucial because there's so much room for misinterpretation on guitar because yeah. of how many different ways you can play something. It's kind of like what Bill was saying on his podcast episode as well. How like Bill Hudson. Yeah, Bill Hudson. Yeah, where he says, well, can't I just play it here? And it's like, no, it sounds wrong. You have to play it on a different string. So even just playing the part on a different string, you might spend hours learning this phrase and you've actually played it in the wrong position on the neck and there's nothing more fucking annoying than that. Yeah. Really. (laughs) Something uh, that I learned for tracking harmonies, for instance, speaking of playing on the neck, is uh, there was something that I was discovering which really annoyed me when I'd record guitar harmonies for rhythms that I couldn't get them to sound like one guitar. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just, and then I realized it's because they're on different strings and every string sounds a little bit different. So I would come up with a, in the studio way to play it where it's all on the same string, left and right guitar. And then obviously live, that's not how it would be done uh, between the two guitars. It would be on different strings because you can't tell live, but the way shit sounds is so different from string to string, from position on the neck, like it really fucking matters. This is one of the th- one of the things that they don't tell you when you go to pick up guitar is that like, oh, it's going to be a fucking headache until the day you die. Like that just, <laughs> it's never going to be in tune. And there is so articulate that, do you know what I mean? It will be different every time you play it, no matter how consistent you are. And there are so many different ways to play something. And do I mute? Do I bend? Do I slide? Do I snap it? Or do I just touch it? Like, do I want to be aggressive with the string? Or do I want to just, do you know what I mean? There's just so, there's so many, so many different variables. And it drives me fucking nuts. Even down to a different pack of strings, it can be from the same company. Do you remember this, Ollie? We were on tour in the States and- Oh, that makes a huge difference. We were so out of tune and we just could not work out what it is. And we worked it out that it was the strings that we had. They just weren't. That's the only real way to put it. Yeah, just something as simple as like the string not being quite right. And obviously every string is slightly different. So it's like, yeah, every single time you change your strings or the strings get like a couple of days old, it's just changed again. And they're temperamental instruments. And the thing that, you know, obviously when you're, say I was like 15 and I had posters of like, I don't know, fucking like Trivium and Killswitch and Slipknot on my wall and stuff. And I'm like, wow, they have the best guitars in the world and they're really happy with their gear and they have their perfect tone. Nope. Like I watched a video maybe, <laughs> maybe last week of um, Mick Thompson from Slipknot 
going on about his new range of signature guitars. And there's a man who has basically achieved everything you can in heavy music in terms of being a guitarist. And he's still there just tweaking away, changing this, changing that, experimenting. There's always something new. Do you know what I mean? There's always something to change or fuck around with. And I'm sure he'll have another one in five, 10 years. Do you know what I mean? Like it never, ever, ever stops. And I don't sleep. (laughs) I mean, just think about guitar versus piano. Piano, every note just appears once. And it's just left to right, right to left. That's not that piano's easy, but just conceptualizing it is way more logical. The uh, guitar is just illogical in how it's set up. It is, but the the beauty of this mangled instrument is that um, you get the articulation that a piano doesn't have. If you you bend a note or slide into a note or pre-bend a note or give it a bit of an angle with your pick or the tone or how hard you're fretting, like all these things make a difference. Yeah, even what string you're on or what pack of strings you're playing or the guitar lead or the pick can make a difference. You know, there are so many different options. And that's the beautiful thing is that um, you can play, you can pick up a guitar and then sound like you play reggae or blues or funk or soul or jazz or metal or rock. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's way easier to kind of convey a genre, convey a vibe, I think, because it's way more articulate and vocal than a piano. I completely agree with you. But also there's, there's one C2 on a piano and that's where you'll always find it. That to me is the big advantage that they have over guitar is uh, one C. There it is. Do you reckon anyone's ever actually detuned a piano like we detune guitars? That's a cool idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imagine like the bottom note being like an octave lower and it just sounds like God farting. Low, low, lower than it already is? <laughs> oh yeah, go lower, man. Not low enough. What's the standard? Um, I, there's a... There's a lot about music I don't know. How many keys are on a piano usually? Like, what's the standard? Like, how many, what'd you get, like? 88. So you get, where's that, four octaves or? No, it's more than that. It's like six, seven octaves, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not good at math. Yeah, 12. What, 65, 72? S- 7.3. I don't know. Maths with riff hard. Yeah, th- this is not, I'm not the person to be asking about this. Because I'm just trying to think, yeah, I mean, they have a lot of range. Like, I, is, no one's going to come out with a baritone piano, are they? Like, you wouldn't be able to hear chords, would you? No, they go pretty fucking low. Do you play any other instruments? No, I had to think then. That just tells you tells you what I think about myself. I don't. I can't do fuck all else. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pretty. I'm pretty close to. I have a pretty close relationship with drums. I'd say I can do just about everything apart from play drums at a gig. Does that help you write better? Yeah, one hundred percent, and it helps me um, bounce off mic. And, you know, I think that's, that's cool in our band. That's something that's been cool about Mike coming back actually, is that, um, I'm, I can be helpful with him to bounce shit off. Cause it's not, um, I can be very specific about why I think something works and why it doesn't, you know, and we can talk about that kind of thing to that kind of level. So I feel pretty useful there. Man, when I first started writing Doth stuff a long time before we got signed, I was writing drums on a drum machine. And I remember the first time that we got Kevin in the studio, Kevin Talley for anyone that wants to look him up, I wanted him to learn my drum machine parts. And he made so much fun of me because they were so unrealistic, like a floor tom hitting at the same time as a china and a hi-hat and a crash kind of shit. Right. You know, like something that you would need eight arms for. And he fucking railed me so goddamn hard that, uh, I decided to get drum lessons after that 
for like six months. Oh yeah. That's sick. Yeah. Just so that not to get good, just so that I could communicate with drummers and write realistic parts and know, know that, know what I'm asking them to do basically. This is the thing, right? For me, I don't want to hear real drums or program drums that aren't realistic unless your band has like an industrial kind of flavor. For example, the new Amur mm-hmm. album has a few instances of um, three crashes at once. I know this because the producer was breaking it down on YouTube and he said that's a conversation he had with Josh. Shout out to Josh. He's a fucking legend. But that's different. That's different to... They have that kind of industrial, new metal, like ignorant swagger where it's all about the result and not about the, you know, anything else. And their drums have always been programmed. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's like a thing for them. Okay. I didn't know that. So that's cool. I think it, it can be difficult to justify removing something that sounds good from your song. Do you know what I mean? A lot of the time. Now for me, I'm like, no, you, I know you can't do that because you've got double kicks happening and you've also got a pedal hat happening. For me, in my brain, that doesn't work. But it's it can be hard to convince someone otherwise if they like, if they have the technology or the means to make the sound they want, why not let them do it? Well, why not let them do it is more, I find that more, this is my producer side coming out. It's more that when I'm working with bands and the guitar player writes everything for the drummer and then the drummer can't play what the guitar player wrote because it's impossible and they can't come to an agreement because the guitar player doesn't understand that he's writing stupid parts, right? then that becomes a problem and it affects the record. Or you get into a situation like mine with Kevin where I'm trying to get him to play stupid parts and it, it hurts the overall thing. If there's a situation like a Muir where it's understood, this is the style, always use program drums. doesn't matter if it's realistic or unrealistic. All we're trying to do is make the most ignorant, heavy shit ever. And, uh, doesn't matter and everyone's on the same page that's cool but uh it's those miscommunications between musicians that's the problem in my opinion i i agree i think i think the worst the the worst context could be if a singer can't hit a note that they managed to record they just about managed to record but they can't hit it or if the drummer can't hit a certain speed or do you know what i mean mm-hmm. at the beginning of this year or maybe it was late last year there was that whole thing where a, a few guitarists were getting called out for recording shit half time or miming or doing whatever. Yep. That's where it becomes a little bit inauthentic. I think I agree to a point that you should do whatever you want in the studio to make it sound good. But sorry. And then there's the other thing is that like, yeah, a lot of the time guitarists program shit drums. It's just a thing. I'm, I'm not the best programmer in the world, but you can often hear when someone just doesn't actually have any attachment or relationship to drums and the parts are just terrible. And it's like the the drummer side of me that doesn't quite officially exist, but it's definitely there as a, a real bone to pick with that kind of shit. Because it just sounds so... You've just ruined the in, the authenticity of your own song. You could have added so much vibe and realness to that. And especially with the technology being what it is today, we have this humanizing function. We have velocities. We have all this stuff that we can, you know, we can make stuff sound real. If that's, if that's the aesthetic that you're going for, then why not do that? It's a bit whack when you hear, when you hear drum parts being played live that are clearly programmed and it's just, everything's just very weird. You can end up with cool stuff as well, but a lot of the time it's just, um, it's quite obvious. It's quite glaringly obvious when something's wrong and not natural. I completely agree. A little cheat that people can do if they're 
programming drums and use superior drummer if they don't want their shit to sound like a fucking robot is just use pull in their MIDI beats because those are played by drummers and then just alter those uh, to be what you want. But start with those because they already have all the dynamics and the human feel because they literally are human. I've noticed that using those uh, drum parts I was programming were they just shot up in quality by a lot in terms of how good things felt. So that's a good little cheat code for people struggling with a shitty, stupid program drum parts. I think it's also really important for guitar players to actually listen and understand yeah. drummers. And I found that the best way to do that is to program the drums of your favorite songs. I did it a lot in the early days. I agree. I covers of like any anything to like Dream Theater, Thrice, Meshuggah, and actually physically see what these drummers are doing. Like pick up on their nuances, especially for the fills and for ideas. Dude. Um, in my first creative live class, the easy drummer one, uh, I, that was the, one of the most important exercises I gave them was take your 10 favorite songs, program them from start to finish. You really want to learn how to write fills and cool beats that do that. I bet only three people did. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of work as well. Programming. That's the, that, that's the other thing. If you're, yeah. if you're a guitarist and you want to write songs, uh, a lot of the time at the beginning, you just want something that will make your riff kind of move, but you're not so concerned with how real it is. And you're not, you're not skillful at it. You're not quick because you don't know the keys. You don't know as much about your DAW as you might. You don't know about the drum program. It's a lot of information to take in. So anyone out there who wants to get better at that stuff i'd say make it a primary focus you know get get your hotkeys together do whatever you can to make it a quicker a quicker process no one wants mm -hmm. to be clicking about everyone wants the song to happen you know what i mean but there will be clicking about you need to move kick drums and change velocities and program and snare rolls and do all this shit i think uh, um as well it doesn't matter if you just program something for the moment just to get your riff idea down. It's about what you do afterwards to make it actually feel like a drummer. Yeah, there are so so many variables. Yeah, I mean, if you just want to get, I mean, you, you don't want to lose the inspiration for the riff, get it down, program something that just works in the moment. And then once you think that you have it finished, then focus on the extra little bits to make it feel more human. Or send it to a mate. Or send it to a drum mate, yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not a drummer. I know what I like. And if I don't know what I like, I'll just message Mike and be like, what do you think? In fact, we had this the other day. So I sent him, um, it was a, it was a slight, a tiny little slight question of a kick drum note. I had, it was like three kick drums and I was like, should I, should I do two and a one or one and a two? It was something tiny like that. And I sent it to him and, um, he was like, no, that sounds fine. And then he, and then he was like, what is this? This is great. Can I play drums on it? It's like, ah, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's happening mm -hmm. now. So that was cool. But yeah, if you don't know something, <laughs> um, you've got, you've probably got Facebook, you've probably got Instagram. When you ask someone who does. That's the beauty of the modern age. There's nothing you can't learn. There's so much information out there. YouTube, man. You have no excuses, no pressure, but you have no excuses. Yeah. <laughs> However, with all the information being out there, this is just uh, my response to something that people have said about Riff Harder URM, I can just find that information on YouTube. It's like, first of all, maybe, but you're going to have to hunt like crazy. It's not going to be assembled in any sort of coherent order. 
And you're going to get like one piece of information from like one guy who lives in his mom's basement in Norway. And then another dude who's a multi-platinum producer, but doesn't know how to talk on camera. Educate. Yeah. And it's, and you're going to have to like do massive detective work to put it all together. That's the thing. Yeah. So there is a lot of information on YouTube and I think you're right. I do want to, um, it's not all on YouTube. And the thing about like a URM is that you've designed courses with levels and, uh, you know, and it's coming from professionals who have had success in the area. So it's like, we recommend that you do this in these steps and there's like a full course of it or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Cause that's how it works. Exactly. Whereas, and I, I rip on people uh, on, on this kind of person a lot and I'm going to keep doing it cause I can't be stopped. And it's that you, um, anyone can get a green screen and become a quote unquote YouTube educator. If it, if you've got an HD camera and the microphone sounds good and it all looks good and it, you know, you've got a good thumbnail, why wouldn't anyone believe you? And that's fine. What you have to remember is it's probably better to do a bit of research into kind of what success have they had? What product have they done? If someone's telling you this is the best way to sweet pick, what, what album are they on where they're sweet picking all sick? Like, where is the... The example, where's the proof of this? I mean, if I'm going to learn to sweet pick, I'd probably go to Ingve. Yeah, or go to, no, the yeah. sort, do you know what I mean? There's a chance that the 16 year old kid in his room who's got a nice camera isn't as good as a touring musician or someone. And those touring musicians don't usually put it all out on YouTube for free. They'll probably have a website like a Riffard or a URM or whatever. Or lessons. So yeah, it definitely depends on, depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, do it. don't take everything as gospel because I remember when YouTube was first starting, when, it, when I first got like maybe 2005, 2006. So it had been, it had been out for a year. And I remember think like there was this little click of people uploading their metalcore riffs and I was one of them. And I remember thinking a couple of things like, man, these guys are so much better than me. And there was a couple of guys like, here's the, here's the, the quickest tip to, to shred or sweet pick or whatever. And I remember thinking like, oh, oh, he knows shit that I don't know. And then as the years go by, you go, no, he doesn't. He doesn't know shit. He, he knows what worked for him, but where, where has he put this to practical... You know, has he ever have he has he done this shit live on tour, or has he done it outside of his bedroom where the the sonic landscape is different, and you know you might need yes. you know where there's stage volume and feedback, and with a drummer behind him on two hours sleep. You know, there's just so much more. So take everything with a pinch of salt for sure, and sign up to URM and Riff Hard, basically. <laughs> well, I know something that bothers me. <laughs> All right, let me just start by saying that I believe that anybody who has any ambition should follow their ambition. For sure. So I'm not trying to say that I don't think that people should follow their dreams. They should. But here we go. But <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I've noticed is when people start posting videos on YouTube about stuff they've never done, like how to make it in the music industry or five tips for being a touring musician or like shit like that. And they've never done it before. What the hell? Like, Seriously, why are they doing that? It's fraudulent. Here is the other aspect of that, is that many, many teachers are teachers and not the thing. So there's an argument for everything. If you have a, a business teacher in school, they might not be a mad businessman. Or I had guitar teachers in college who aren't, you know, on a bunch of albums and stuff. They're just teachers. That's their skill. Their skill is education. You're correct about that, but I'm not talking about professional educators. I'm talking okay. about people who are talking about something they don't know anything about. Right. Well, yeah. Pretend. Fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah. No. Uh, so my best teacher, my best teacher at Berkeley, shit, I don't even remember his name, but my best teacher, guitar teacher at Berkeley. <laughs> he was sick. Was, 
<laughs> he no, he wasn't sick. That's the thing. He was not that great of a guitar player. He was just an incredible teacher. So I agree. But he knew he had the skill of conveying the information properly. What I'm talking about is people who are making shit up, basically. Like there's certain things that you can't know unless you've done. Like you can't know the actual hardship of being on tour. You can't actually know what it's like to uh, deal with labels. These are things that I'm sorry, you can't read about them. I mean, you could, but that's only going to give you like 20% of the story. The real knowledge of this stuff comes from doing it in real life and understanding what types of relationships you're going to deal with and what the actual problems are. So when people who have never done it put that info out, I think it's just super misleading. I'm with you. Also, when people put out mixing videos and they've never mixed anything, that bothers me too. I'm sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> this is the hard thing about it because like I consider myself a pretty good teacher. I'm probably not as good as a of a guitar player as I am at conveying the information that I'm trying to. I think I'm probably better with my mouth, basically. Like I've... <laughs> I can talk the talk, but walk the walk just a little bit less. You are not in the category I'm talking about, dude. You're not even in the same universe. Oh, no, I, I appreciate it. I'm just trying to talk devil's advocate, right? So it's like, I think I'm a good teacher and I think I can probably help 99% of guitarists get to where they're trying to get. But because I think I have valuable information, I don't want to put it all out there on free YouTube videos. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like you're saying, like the five, if you if you have some videos, like five essential tips for business, it's like, Business is not about giving shit away for free and giving everyone <laughs> in the world uh, a leg up. Do you know what I mean? And and it's in the, it's in the same thing. It's like I want to put free content out for people to kind of know who I am. But am I putting out everything? No, I have. It's it's just the tip of the iceberg because I have things. You know, I have information that I believe I could charge people for. It's like it wouldn't cost Brown anything to put out a hundred free riff hard videos on YouTube. But then what does he get out of it? a couple of, a couple of views. So I mean, that's why the site is there because he actually has product. He actually has something to, to offer. A community. And uh, the thing too is, uh, yeah, you could put out a hundred videos on down picking on YouTube and maybe get some views, maybe some dollars, but it probably isn't going to be enough to actually keep going at that level. So in or if people want super high quality information coming their way, they need to fund it somehow because that shit doesn't create itself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like a URM course, man, they cost us tens of thousands of dollars to make. I'm just saying it, it's expensive, like making a record or something. It's not just going to spontaneously generate. If you look at, if you look at like Greg Howe or David Weckl or Paul Gilbert or Andy James, these are all professionals who have been professionals for a while. And whilst they, you know, they're proper enough to have free features on YouTube here and there, they all have websites. They all have shit, you know, they all have a place where you can get their information from um, legitimately. Do you know what I mean? Where like, like what would, what would Paul Gilbert get for just putting out free lessons on YouTube? Why? He knows so much. He's so good at what he does. It's, it, it makes no sense for him to not have somewhere for you to be able to pay for that. So if someone's putting out a free video every day and they're like, yo, you want to tap? This is how you tap. This is what you're missing. Here's the one <laughs> thing 99% of guitarists miss about tapping. Here's the one thing they don't know. 
You don't know shit, boy. Shut your mouth. <laughs> but it also might just be clickbaity as well. There is that element. Yeah. Well, okay, so that raises a question then. They want clicks for a reason because they must be getting some sort of YouTube revenue. So does nobody think that maybe it's really not about the, the content and the actual quality of it and it's just about having a post? Yes. So um, the smartest people I know who use social media use it as part of a funnel basically where it's like it's one step in a process. So say Instagram, like say their YouTube videos lead to their Instagram. So say the YouTube video is super general, like clickbaity shit. Then, but people who like that then are encouraged to follow the Instagram, which is slightly more personal stuff, which leads to a podcast, which is a super in-depth stuff which then leads to private coaching. Um, so if people go every level, then that makes sense. But the amount of people that I know who actually think things through to that level are like five, you know? Most people I know just throw videos up and what it, these are, we refer to those as vanity metrics, views and click and likes and stuff mm. because- I love that shit. That's all it is. Vanity metrics, yeah. Give me some of that. <laughs> Make me feel loved. I think everyone loves it. That's the problem. We do, but it doesn't keep your lights on. No. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, it's got to be part of a bigger process, basically. The end. The end. All right, so we've got some questions here from listeners. Oh, yeah? Do you mind if we ask them? For me specifically. For you specifically. Oh, shit. That's some vanity metrics right there. Yeah, we got quite a few vanity metrics for you. So from Isaiah Hubert, and uh, this will be the most vanity metric one of all why are you so attractive <laughs> because i use instagram filters next is that it that's not a very that, good answer the best answer <laughs> what would you say john brown what makes you so attractive it's not it's not that easy is it me <laughs> it's not actually no <laughs> i'll tell i'll tell you what it is it's your eyes mate you've got nice eyes bro and your big hair it's your big hair oh thank you your big hair and your nice eyes that was pretty different. That was pretty difficult. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Anyway, next question is from Rich Whitney. Did you have any defining moments where you were learning songwriting or arrangement where it just clicked or made sense from the from there on out? It was much easier for you to compose whole songs versus just coming up with riffs. Yeah, two things. Uh, number one is having prior success. So after I put out what I consider to be my my one proper like solo tune is a tune called Balance. After that, and being like, okay, that is a song, and it's it's well it's been received as a song, and I believe it to be a song, and there it is, I made a song. It's the the next thing is it you know the next natural thing is to be like, okay, let's go make another one. Do you know what I mean? Whereas before you write your first full song that you think is actually quite sick, there can be a lot of oh I don't know, can I do it, or is this really good, or do you know what I mean? So that I could, you could say that's a breakthrough in to some degree because it's my first example of a tune. And then um, the second would be, what was the question again? Was there a breakthrough? Yeah, the second would be, it's, it's not so much of a breakthrough, but I think it's very important for you to take with you, which would be that it's not the same battle every time. It's not the same struggle. Something that went really smoothly last time might be a head fuck this time and vice versa, do you know what I mean? So treat each song as its own beast 
And it's not, sometimes you can refer to other things. Sometimes you can use a device or a concept that you used before, but um, just be aware that it's, you know, it's a different thing. It's a different tempo. It's a different key. It's a different message. It's, you know, a different vibe. Um, so try and keep that in your mind because you could probably get stuck into a point where you're like, you know, this, oh shit, this worked the last time, but now it's not working. So uh, that's what I would say. That applies to mixing too, by the way. Just saying. All right. Next question uh, from Koi Raskowski. Are you competitive with Brown to come up with riffs? And does that drive you harder on each album? And then he said, a healthy competitive nature. I don't know. What, what do you reckon, Brown? I wouldn't say that I'm very competitive at all. Yeah, but that's because you're better. So you don't have to be. <laughs> I, I definitely would not agree with that. I actually think you're a much better guitar player, but... Vanity. I don't think it's necessarily competitiveness. I think it's more that both of us come from the, the direction that we just want what's better for the song, in a way. I think there is an element. I think it's obviously bollocks to, to sit here and pretend like knowing that Brown is the other guitar player doesn't affect my choices in positive and negative ways. And I don't mean that like good or bad, but I just mean like in making me act more or be more reserved. So I know that when we come to submit our ideas for the next album, I'm usually assuming that Brown's going to do some sick shit. He often writes riffs where I'm like, oh, you bastard. I wish I'd written that often. Like, Oh yeah. The same vice versa though. Yeah. So that's like, good. So that's, I don't know if that's called competition, but that makes, I would call that would be the healthy competitive nature, I think. Okay. Cause I, I, I actually said to Ollie that when he released balance, that we should make it a monument sock. That was quite a, that was a good moment for me actually. Cause that was, that was like a, ah, oh, so you do like my riffs. You fucking bastard. <laughs> Never was like that. You... No, I know. I know. I know. But it was like a, it was like a nice, um, that was, that was nice. That was, that was, I think what it was, right, and I've said this to Ollie before, and I'll say it again just for the people to sort of understand. It's pretty difficult to write the rest of a song when someone's only given you one or two riffs from that song. It's you're trying to fill the other information with someone else's idea. Now, some people are good at that. That's one of the things that I've never been particularly good at, but we did it on Saga City and Destroyer. I'm actually good at that. You should join Monuments. <laughs> <laughs> that would happen a lot with me and Emil. He'd come up with like two riffs and then give them to me and then I'd have to like make a song out of it. That's great. Yeah, I can't do that. It's difficult because you don't, the person that originally wrote that riff has more of a vibe on what yes. they were going for, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? So this is, this is something I've been thinking about even recently is that at the end of the day, whether you are given a full song or not, the person who wrote it, whether they know it or not, whether it's conscious or subconscious, they do have an idea of where it would end up or where, what that yes. would be in that song. So, so it makes it challenging. Yeah. Like for example, with like Mike sent, sending in some demos now for new monuments material, and I'm kind of trying to learn them and it's fucked because he's programmed all the drums, but it's a, it's a fun challenge, uh, program all the guitar, sorry. And, uh, with that, I think it's smart and healthy to just kind of, you know, try and fulfill his vision a bit instead of just being like trying to muscle in your own shit. Because I find that most of the time, whoever came up with the original idea, if you kind of let them get on with it, the song might be, you know, it might end up where it's supposed to be. A lot of the time. Although having said that, there are there are collaborative songs like with Leviathan. Leviathan. That, yeah, that yeah. that has my favorite monuments chorus ever. And that on guitar. It's horrible to fucking play though. 
Uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of what it was. It's not like I, I don't see myself as, as a competitive person. I just want it to be the best it can be. That's, I think that's different. And I think that that's not competitive for me anyway. I, I think, I, I do think that um, maybe it's not just a me and Brown thing, but I think monuments, yeah, like a lot of the time I see monuments as its own thing because I have to do that because I don't want to just be the guy who plays, you know, Brown's riffs or just the other, do you know what I mean? I think it's smart to see it as his own living entity. That's the way I see songs, right? You got to let the song do what it wants, do what's healthy for the song. So I kind of see the band like that a lot. And when you have, you know, Swanee's sick at bass, extremely capable vocalist, and then Mike Malian is your drummer, I often feel like, okay, we need to do some sick shit because there's a lot of musicality going on here. And, you know, I don't want to submit something that's whack. I mean, I just naturally wouldn't. I might submit something that someone else doesn't like. That's fine. But I, I really would try not to just submit something that I didn't truly believe in. Makes sense. And it's because and it's of them. It's because of the other members in the band. But I never, I mean, like, Brown can downpick faster than me and I can probably alternate pick faster than him. And I don't think either of us gives a fuck. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. It does. Okay, so next question. Give me the vain ones first. I want all the vanity up front. <laughs> all right, okay, you'll like this one. This is from Jake Hinchy. Hinky. Don't know how to pronounce that. Where do you get that jacket in your balance playthrough video? <laughs> <laughs> that was... No, because I know. So it's just going to sound really fucking dumb. Uh, that was a Zara 2018 fucking issue or whatever you call it. It's just a bomber jacket from Zara. I think it was probably like 70 quid. And uh, yeah, it's sick. But I don't think... I like Zara. I don't know if they make them. So do I. Now that I'm getting old, things excite me, like getting a new kettle and finding a new shop and... That was one of the, the more recent things. I'm looking forward to wearing all my Zara clothes. We should go hang out and be Zara boys. I think it'd be awesome. Dude, I like Zara, I like Express, I like H&M, I like all that stuff. Like for me, Zara, whenever I walk into it, it's always a fucking mess and I can't handle it because everything's kind of everywhere. Maybe I need to go at the start of the day before they, you know, when they've actually folded all the clothes. This is metal as fuck. <laughs> okay, so when going to stores like that, you kind of have to know kind of what you're looking for in my opinion because there's so much shit that I would never wear from one of those places like I'd say 99% of the stuff but usually there will be like one jacket that's just fucking awesome at one of those or like one unique style of jeans or something like that you just kind of have to know what to look for I think I think that's very true yeah tell your boy he can um if he makes me and I know I already mentioned the original price but I don't care uh, he can, if he makes me a crazy offer, he can have my one. Has to be crazy though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question from Rich Whitney. Did you mix and master balance yourself? And if so, or even if not, can you give any insight on how it came out so damn clean and present sounding? Fuck no, I did not. I can't mix anything. I can EQ guitars and that is about it. I'm not a mixer. I had to call Brown and ask him how to set up this microphone I bought three years ago and didn't touch because I had whatever I was going to use it for didn't. <laughs> I was like, so do I, am I going to compress this going in or what's like, I've, I'm so, I don't know anything when it comes to um, like altering audio. I can do automation. I can do EQing. Compressors are beyond me. It's terrible. I'm sorry if that breaks anyone's heart, but I'm just not, I'm very focused on. T Who mixed it? Joel Wanasek. Oh, okay. 
Joel's good. And the reason it sounds so clean is because, so that was another moment where, you know, on, on, pre, on like previous Monuments albums, I didn't really have the terminology together for mix notes. So I didn't really know what was going on. I would say things like more treble or more bass. And now I know that that's, an, that's a spectrum and treble could be coming from the mastering or the overheads or the top end of the guitar or this or that. Do you know what I mean? It's everything is, everything's doing something. Um, so with, with balance, I kind of learned these things. I first, I first thing I did was I kicked it off by sending him the wrong, just like inappropriate references. I was like, kind of make it sound like this, but then a bit like this, a bit like this, a bit like this. And then he nailed it. He literally fucking nailed what I'd sent him. And then I was like, ah, oh, that's just not the song I wanted to hear. I love it when that happens. Yeah. So, so we did a few revisions and then as I'm going through it, I'm sending it to Brown. I'm like, something sounds fucked about this. What is this? And then he'll say something and I'll be like, oh, I didn't know that was a phrase or a term that I could use. I didn't, you know, I wouldn't listen to that. At one point I sent it to um, Anoop who did the drums and I was like, something about the snare that's bugging me. And he was like, tell him to brighten the drum room. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. That's something I just never would have. I don't know. I didn't know what that was. And he did. And he smashed it. So what I'm getting at is I think there were like 19 revisions (laughs) on that song. And I'm not, um, not proud of it. But I think, but also it could have been tiny things like one revision might be a slight automation thing. Do you know what I mean? And also we were going, you know, we, I was touring in between them and stuff. So what I had to listen to it on would vary throughout the day. Sometimes it's in ears, sometimes it's overhead. Sometimes I'd be home for a couple of weeks. So I have monitors. So it was a lot, it was a big learning process. But the reason it sounds like that is because basically, because I just kept going and pushing Joel till I got it how I wanted it. And Joel is very sick and he was very patient with me. He loves working with you guys. Yeah. See, I, it's the relationship with Joel is very, very sick. He's, um, he's just mixed one of my new tunes and he's going to mix the one afterwards. I don't know if he knows that, but he will, because he'll do what I say. You, you know what's awesome about Joel? For people who don't know, he's my business partner at URM. The thing about Joel that is insanely awesome is what he's, he just executes he's so fucking productive and uh, just gets shit done. It's, but like at an insane rate. So there's like, I've never seen him not be able to handle a job. For sure. Yeah. It's impressive. I think he needs one of those ice baths if he's not doing it. I'm sure he does it. (laughs) Having the, having the, that, that kind of experience with him, we, you know, going back and forth with the balance thing and kind of truly getting to know like him, how he works, what I actually want from my song. Because I can say, yeah, make it sound sick, but you have to be specific. And the more terminology you know, and the more you know about mixes and EQ and stuff like that, the more you can have someone who's good at it, sculpt it to how you want. So when it came to yep. doing like, you know, Phrenesis, no, this was after Phrenesis actually, but came to do like Animus or this new song, or sometimes I work with him now, I'll do like jingles for Drum Forge or whatever. It's a lot quicker, it's a lot more streamlined. And I kind of, he kind of knows what I want and I kind of know how he's gonna, you know, approach things. Um, it's really cool. He's sick. So yeah, Joel won a sec. You could probably take as a one word answer, two word answer. All right, we have time for one more. So uh, this question is actually just to further on the terminology of what we were just talking about, but it's from George Popenkoff. Sorry, everyone who's had a question has had a banging name. It's it sounds like the fucking Knights <laughs> of the Round Table. It is. <laughs> <laughs> how do you dial gain on the amp and how does the amp influence your playing? Well, the amp influences your playing no matter what it is. That's just the fact. 
you are going to play depending on the response you get from the amp. Obviously, there are variables, your hands, the guitars, and blah, blah, blah. But the, the amp is always a factor. Having said that, I usually try and go for an amp sound that is very responsive and direct and not very fucky. Do you know what I mean? I want to feel as connected as possible. So I don't want it to be too noisy or layered or something. I try and achieve things with the, the, the simplest amount of chain as possible. And then as for dialing in gain, for what kind of tone? I mean, assuming that you mean a modern metal sound, I usually want enough gain for it to saturate and thicken the sound, but not so much fizz that it's not tactile and nimble. And so we can do all the chicka chicka stuff and be like tight, but you also want it to, you know, be able to do big chords and stuff like that. So usually not too much, but you, you know, not too little can also exist. It's very vague, but that's what it is. Awesome. Well, Ollie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming on. Oh yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, for sure. Glad we were able to make it happen. I'm going to have to catch up with uh, every, all the other ones now and see if anyone else Good swore luck. as much as like, Yeah, I'm just going to, I'll watch like. Dude, they're fucking long. I'll listen to Docs and then <laughs> I'll listen to like, who else have you had? I'll finish the Andy James one. Jason Richardson, Wes Howe. Oh, Wes. Mark Heilman, um, Bill Hudson. Heilman. You should definitely listen to the Mark Heilman one. Yeah. Heilman, sorry. Yeah. We've had a, done like 12 of them now. All right. Well, I'll, I'll do what I can. I think catching up might already be, might already take, take me well into my 80s. So. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was saying. That's a bit ambitious. Cool. Just be thankful that we're not Deanna and we have to listen to them all on repeat. Dude, and she does like eight different podcasts now. But she also has an entire bookcase of Stephen King. Yes. She's got a podcast <laughs> about that. Yeah. It's amazing. She's a trooper. Thank you, Deanna. Thanks, Deanna. Nice one, mate. All right, Ollie. Thank you. Peace out, boys. Have fun. See you later, man. Bye. Ollie fucking Steele. Yeah. He's a lot better than people realize, I think. Well, actually, I think people are starting to realize. I mean, I didn't even know for a long time how good he was because, I mean, I assumed he was obviously good enough to be in Monuments, but, like, I didn't realize that he was, like, a fucking awesome guitar player until only recently. He's a very, very good guitar player. And, you know, uh, he was going on about how he joined Monuments and then sort of winged his way through it. I think that... Was he being modest? Yeah. I think that you can see when someone is capable of doing something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that was it. I mean, it probably part of why he's good is because he doesn't think he's that good, so he tries to get better. That's exactly what it is. It's the same as the Jeff Loomis mentality, isn't it, that we spoke about? Yep, absolutely. It's just one more example of, of that character trait I find in like the best players is they never think they're that great, with the exception of Ingve. <laughs> but he's actually great, and... To be fair, he went through his own, you know, shit, you know, with having to relearn guitar. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. So, I mean, if you, if you went through that as well, you'd probably be like, right, I've just done it twice. I'm fucking sick. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right about that. One thing you guys talked about that I thought was interesting was having to finish somebody else's riffs or songs, because that's come up in my life a lot. I just think that if you get handed one riff, it's kind of really difficult to really see the overall vision of what that's meant to be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but you do it on Riff Rescue all the time. 
Yeah, of course. I give ideas on ways that they could go. But the person that, that's written that riff is obviously going to do it in a way that they meant it. It's kind of like their execution of it. So I do that with Riff Rescue all the time. But at the end of the day, the initial idea didn't come from me. Not to say that I couldn't make the song great, but I think that the person finishing the song would have an overall more comprehensive viewpoint on what that riff is meant to mean. Does that make sense to you? It's almost like finishing someone else's story. Do you know what I mean? Like it's their perception of it. So I think that great songs can be created that way. Obviously, I mean, Saga City came out of that. Um, Ollie wrote the chorus riff of that song and I finished the rest of it. Destroyer, he also wrote the chorus and then I did the rest of the song around it. But those songs would have been drastically different if he would have finished them. So I think that neither way is wrong, but I think that allowing the song to, you know, go to a certain place before someone else messes around with it is definitely a good idea as well. Cause then the core element of that song is where that person wanted it to go. So I think that why Riff Rescue is so valuable is because when people are first learning how to play and write and aren't as developed as say you or Ollie, they may not totally have that kind of vision all worked out as in they, they don't, they don't totally know where they can take things yet. Exactly. And so you're helping them see just what kind of potential their ideas could have. Exactly. That's the difference. Like seeing the potential is one thing, but then once you have an understanding of the different places that you can take your ideas, then it's all your vision. You know, you, I mean, a lot of us will hear things in our head. We can hear the finished article and it's about recreating what we're hearing. And that's what I'm going on about with it's your vision. But with Riff Rescue, it shows you in different ways where you can take that vision which is invaluable information. And it just spans from the original idea. For people who don't know what Riff Rescue is, um, it is on the Riff Hard site. Why don't you walk us through what, what goes into it? One of our members will submit a riff, a couple of riffs, sometimes a whole song on the Riff Rescue section of the website. I will listen through to the submissions and... On that particular day or the day before, it might spark something with me. And that's the one I'll go for, the one that really instantly sort of sparks in that moment. And I'll go on a live stream for all Riff Hard members to watch, and I will work on this riff and try and recreate different parts from it live on air for everyone to watch. So they get to see the whole process, the whole process of programming drums, playing bass, trying to make different parts out of their idea. And... Man, some of them are really sick too. Some of the riffs that are sent in are really, really sick. And then sometimes I'll write something sick to it as well. In fact, I've not had a complete flop yet, which is good. Because <laughs> it's quite it's quite nerve-wracking at the same time. It's like Yeah, you are you're batting a thousand right now for sure. Yeah. I'm putting myself on the spot and having people watch me try and be creative in an environment that is not usually how I write. I'm quite individual in the way that I write my own music. I like to have complete silence. So this has also helped me in many ways because I get to write in a different situation that I used to feel very uncomfortable with. Putting yourself in those situations is always good as well because as you know, some of the refresh cues that I've done have come out absolutely amazingly. I mean, I've even surprised myself a handful of times. 
Yeah, it's some impressive stuff. So those of you listening, if you feel like you're hitting an impasse with your writing, you feel like there's more that you could achieve with your songs, but you're just not getting there, go to riffhard.com, submit for a riff rescue and get a little taste of where shit can go. And I really, really want to do it. That's the other thing. So please send me your riffs. Yeah, take advantage. He might not want to do this forever. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Anyways, Brown, it's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure, man. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week. Next week.